You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker. I'm joined with, hey, only one of my good friends of the two, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. How's it going up in Boston, buddy? Hey, it's going all right, Matt. It's it's like 60 degrees today, finally, <sighs> and we're it's just absolutely glorious. <laughs> you. Man, I would I wish I wish I could give you my my show you my webcam because now it's snowing again and we're <laughs> under a snowstorm watch and exactly. thankfully it's up to a foot, but uh, but only about two or three inches here. So far it's so good. But oh man. Like I said, Facebook just completed that one. That was a that was a straw that broke the camel's back. Once it told me that it's gonna be an early spring and it's not. No more. Can't trust Facebook. But I, I'm so happy it's sixty for you, man. That's great. So hearing the birds chirping seeing some some greenery at all starting to perk up or well, not yet. it's not it's so weird i i was my phone brought up some pictures of this time last year you know how it does that once in a yeah. while and just like mm-hmm. it like pops up and I, it was amazing because I, I had taken pictures of these bushes that were like in full bloom like these incredibly colored flowers and everything is still dead here it's like yeah. it, the spring here must be a lot later than it was last year too yeah because yep. there's no green yet but yeah uh, it must be coming so i was seeing the same thing on the last year is like and i remember it was a really early spring here in colorado and it was awesome it was one kind of benefit it. But then, of course, that led to a really terrible summer in Colorado with the, the enormous amount of fires and devastation. So, hey, um, I don't like the snow, but if it's precipitation, we're good. But we're not here to be the weathermen. We're here <laughs> to talk about all things COVID. So before we get going, a couple of things. We love reviews. Hey, we got three or four of them in the past week. That was awesome. I would love to see them. It gets us motivated. Got one here. I'll read this a positive, fun one here if I can open it up. Uh, oops, wrong one. We'll go back here and we'll do this one. Well-rounded and good Oh, it's not showing up. I'll read the small print. It says, uh, well-rounded and good insight. I love these guys. Started listening from the beginning. It was been the longest, shortest year. I always look forward to everyone. That's what it feels like, everyone's perspective. Thank you for all the time you put into the show. I'm glad you guys ponder the same questions I have been thinking about, such as vaccines for kids. If vaccines protect against severe disease and kids already are very low risk, is it better to let them get exposed and let the disease become endemic over time? So she put in the question in the context of this. I think one only time will tell. So we had one of those. And then just an FYI, we got a not so good review. We got two out of three stars from somebody says, mm, feelings are now science. So just wanted a, not a good review. And I want to bring this elevate just to clear up any, anything that was a, basically a pretty bad review over about us talking about masks and talking about how the complexity of all and the issues of that masks also help for help helping other people feel safe as well. But that wasn't the only reason. Of course, we also believe that actually scientifically grounded, we wouldn't say that they don't work. So just put them on to make people feel good. Um, the person who left this review probably haven't listened to our previous episodes. You can go back to 66. I think it's episode 66, just a couple down. We talked about it again, and there's a bunch of links in the show notes of the science behind masks and their efficacy that, uh, that Mark and Steven has shared with me. They show that they actually do work. And of course, the complicated question by talking about what it means by work, but we we talk about it there. We've talked about it in the past. So we've, we have a long story about dealing with masks and it's not just feelings, it's science, but also as Stephen has enlightened my mind to that, like all things, epidemiology is complicated. It's not just that, but it's also dealing with how do you deal with just the health on a large scale on all different levels, which can, which is considerations on different things. So check our previous podcast, particularly 66. Um, if you want to support us $5 a month, that's all it takes patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or just a one-time gift uh paypal venmo all in the show notes okay so let's get started steven so i'm gonna start with this we were talking off before we start recording about what you were up to you're working on something i thought this would be a great catalyst to talk about tons of things 
with COVID related. So why don't you share what you're what you're working on right now with vaccines, and then let's chat about how that impacts us and what's going on in my world particularly as well. Yeah. So there's the vaccine landscape seems to be changing by the minute. Mm-hmm. It's been absolutely unbelievable. And it, it, what I mean by that in particular is we recently found out that states are generally going to be opening up their vaccination to all adults on May 1st, if not before. And so that's that's a really big deal because a lot of what we've been talking about so far is about vaccine prioritization. Who should mm-hmm. we be giving the vaccine to first? But with the eligibility of vaccination opening up much more generally, then the conversation starts to shift a little bit because now it's it's not so much about prioritization, who gets it before or to the exclusion of others. And rather, how do we strive towards making sure that the entire population is as protected as it can be? And so what we end up with is is essentially these shifting notions of, of what we need to be doing. A lot of the research, of course, has suggested that and indicates very clearly that as you get older, your risk of severe illness and death from COVID really increases quickly. And so that's what has been behind most of the states that uh, I think every state in the US so far has adopted some sort of age-based guidelines where they're trying to vaccinate by age, older people first, based off of modeling that we were involved in, that other groups were involved in, that that really seems to be a pretty sensible thing to do. But it's not the only thing to do. Of course, people who are older are not the only people who are at high risk of severe disease and illness. And that risk also tracks by other demographic groups, by occupations, people who are working front-facing very public-facing jobs are also at increased risk of acquiring disease. Many of those people also uh, come from communities where they have lower access to healthcare, where rates of comorbidities are higher, and that can also translate into higher risks of severe disease and illness for those very same people as well. So oftentimes we, we lump those people into essential workers. It's not exclusively that, and I think that that term can be problematic on different levels as well, but that's the term that we've adopted to, to, to speak about some of these populations. And some modeling also indicates that, that vaccinating the elderly alongside essential workers can also be a really important way to reduce cases overall and to reduce overall morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. So that's fine and good. Uh, but now there's some of the things that I've been hearing is that all of that is now moot as we transition into now everybody's going to be valid, eligible. Anybody can get the vaccine. And so that's great. It's all of this like careful prioritization and, and trying to figure out who needs to get the vaccine first out the window. Everybody's going to get it. It's going to be great. Yep. Which is on the one hand, great. Like I think that opening up vaccine eligibility is an indication that we have enough vaccines for people to get them who want them, which is great. We need to be getting you know as many people vaccinated as, as we can to really help get control of the pandemic. But the very same groups that we really need to be vaccinating and that we've been prioritizing for vaccination also tend to have the highest barriers to vaccination as well. That includes the elderly. They're like many, many rates of technology difficulty and difficulty of just like transportation. Oftentimes, older people don't aren't familiar with computers and aren't, can't like access things on the internet. And so if they don't have somebody who's younger and technologically savvy to help them, how are they going to get their vaccine appointment? There are ways, but we need to be really proactive about that. It's not just enough to make a web page, say sign up here, and to assume that everybody's going to be able to get vaccinated. Same is true for essential workers. Many of them are working hours that are at odds with the opening of the vaccine clinics. So we need to make sure that we have vaccine clinics that are open, that we're giving people paid time off to get the vaccine, that we're providing childcare for people who don't have it when they're getting the vaccine, when they're recovering from the symptoms that the vaccine induces, right? Like all of these things are things that we need to think about and that affect people who need the vaccine most to a disproportionate degree. And so that's part of what we've been thinking about with this vaccine allocation group is 
just recognizing that if we really do want equitable vaccine distribution, if we want basically the entire population to be vaccinated at similar rates, there's some populations who are going to need extra support and extra help. And we're trying to figure out how to provide that. That's great. And this is a great example. Like for those of you who have been listening for a while, you guys have known, I've, I've mentioned my mother-in-law over and over and over and, and haven't talked to my own parents because my parents are younger and they're further away and they were able to get vaccinated quite easily on their own in, in Missouri. Great news is my mother-in-law just got her first vaccine on Friday. So it's a huge milestone for us and our family, but I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe how much work it took us to get her. We were working on this for two to three weeks. We actually, for us, it was about two weeks. We had to step in because I think she was just roadblock after roadblock. She was confused. She was trying to call her primary care physician to get it there. And then they weren't responding right away. And so then, and then, Somebody said, we'll just call you and let you know when you're ready. And, but then there's no phone calls. Like, this is just odd. And thankfully we got in through a grocery store who was some, some lady who was just really caring. Literally what, it was nothing about the system. It was the exception to the system that got us in because the lady felt bad for us and said, hold on, wait. And then a minute later, if you come in in the next 15 minutes, I got you one. Like that was the only way we we're going to get it. So not through the, and so it's, gosh, I can only imagine and that's with my wife and me, most my wife, like 99% of it, trying to work on navigating the system to get her the vaccine. And it was just because of a gracious woman in, at a grocery store that got us slotted in. So I can imagine how this has felt. And I saw this as well. I don't know if you can speak into this, but I saw this article that uh, vaccine hesitancy may not be why people of color are getting COVID shots at a lower rate. And I'm guessing this is a similar reality. It went through they don't have the answer, but they're like, when you look at vaccine hesitancy, it's really no different from non-color color when you look at basically the rates. So it can't be necessarily that. And, but they're like, I think it's really just accessibility. It's where it's located at the right time. And as we were saying, it's probably just not a low, the lowest hanging fruit. And so it becomes something you just postpone and spread not the right thing that we need to do. We need to give a little extra love to those people where in those areas where we just need to get it to make it lower and more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. And even to the extent that vaccine hesitancy exists amongst all different yeah. demographic groups and populations and these kinds of things. And, and I think that an important thing there too, is that it's really easy to blame the vaccine hesitant for their hesitancy. Mm. And yeah. even long before COVID, I've always thought that we as public health professionals really have a responsibility to recognize we're living in a free society in which people do have the freedom to turn down the vaccines if they so choose. And so our job is to develop vaccines that are safe and effective and to give very convincing arguments and reasons why we believe that these things are, are worth getting. And so if we see high rates of vaccine hesitancy in certain populations, that really reflects back on those of us who are who are working to develop the vaccines and distribute the vaccines, because that means that we haven't haven't sufficiently done our job with some folks. We haven't really reached out. We haven't shown that love in the way that we need to. And that's really what I think that it points to. So I, I just wanted to definitely put in that point because there can be a lot of blaming of, of the people who are not, you know, getting the vaccines. And I, that's understandable in a way. It's easy to you know, demonize people we don't agree with, these kinds sure. of things. But I think especially as those of us who are deeply committed to public health, just recognizing that it's uh, it's an element of, of truthful and honest sharing what we believe to be true and hoping yeah. that others will find those arguments valid. That's great, Steve. And it goes to the whole idea of, look, I think, honestly, we're called to follow our conscience. I mean, our conscience is one of the things that need to be elevated and we need to follow it. And as, as I, I guess I can speak personally, my conscience can suck at times. And so it needs to be formed. And who do we look to to have a formed conscience? And that is qualified people. 
And it's hard, especially when you have all like a chaotic cacophony of voices talking about differences and you're trying to form your conscience. Like, what should I do? And there's no linear approach to this and it's all over. Who do you look to? Again, the same thing. It's complicated. So just thankful for like Stephen and all the epidemiologists around the country who are on the United Front to help just not to shame, but just to educate and help uh, bring to light. What's the truth about the vaccine? What's the truth about the virus? And hopefully allow it to settle down all the other chaos around us, principally on social media. Okay. Speaking of craziness and chaos, this question came from Sarah. She's not crazy or chaotic. Her question is awesome. It was one of the questions that like, I didn't even know where to go with this. So thankful Stephen and Mark were here. Now, I know you're mentioning that Mark needs to weigh in on this as well, but I wanted to start the conversation. Frame this for us, Stephen, because this is a really interesting question. So I'm not even going to read it. It's a long email, but you can maybe get the idea of what she's trying to propose. She mentioned ADE, and I was asking you guys what that actually meant. And something about this idea of the vaccine could cause potentially more problems for us down the road. And is there evidence for this? And you guys were even saying that either Mark or you were talking about there is evidence that some other coronavirus may have done something like this. I'm not sure. But can you set the stage for this question and help us understand what she's trying to unpack and how we can give an answer to her? Yeah, so at the at the center of this question is this idea of antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. And the idea behind that is that some some viruses, I think it's mostly viruses that I'm aware of, it's it's relatively rare, but but what they can do is is you, you can be exposed and get an infection from a virus, and, and that first infection will just proceed like a normal infection. But the issue is that then when you are exposed to a related but slightly different virus, a different virus strain then the antibodies that your body has produced to protect you against that first infection. Actually, the virus has figured out a way to hack those antibodies and to use those as a way to more efficiently infect your cells. And often it can cause a worse infection the second time around. So the canonical example that we usually think of when we think about antibody-dependent enhancement, where my mind immediately goes, is dengue fever, which is a mosquito-borne illness. And it usually causes a... You, you feel rough when you get it the first time. But the second time around, it can be life-threatening. Not always, but it can really... Usually it's it's the second second exposure that, that causes a lot of issues. Now, this is really important too with, with the question about vaccination, because there was a dengue vaccine that was developed. And it was ultimately pulled because partly because of, of these issues of antibody-dependent enhancement. Because if you had been exposed to dengue and then vaccinated, the vaccine worked very well. But if you hadn't yet been exposed to dengue, got the vaccine, and then were exposed later, the vaccine basically acted like that first infection and could actually enhance symptoms the second time around. So that's something we've been watching very closely from, from the very beginning of the pandemic. I remember the, when we were when we were still working in person. So this was back January, February of okay. 2020. That was on the table. That was something that we were talking about with our group at the at Harvard trying to understand, could this be the case? If so, how would we know? And so we've, that's something we've been really paying attention to. And there were some articles written even early in the pandemic sort of speculating, could this happen? What are the different ways that it could happen? I can maybe direct you to one in the show notes that that, that we could post as well. So with, with, with coronaviruses, antibody-dependent enhancement is just one of a couple of ways in which previous infection can affect and potentially exacerbate later infections. With previous coronaviruses, we've seen other types of, of this 
these interactions between different infections. But to my knowledge, they don't quite fall under the same umbrella as like antibody dependent enhancement like we've seen with dengue. And and it, it's not totally clear how frequent they are, if there's actually anything really to pull out from that. It was, it was really speculation. And, and it's grounded in some science, but it, the, the sizes, the sample sizes were just not big enough to really draw out anything super conclusive. So what all of this goes to say is that we're, we are in a time where, where there's, you know, we have, we have variants starting to emerge, which in theory could maybe be different enough from an initial exposure where if antibody dependent enhancement exists, then it, it could, it could, it could lead to that. We haven't seen that on, on a large scale. We've we've seen people certainly who have been exposed and re-exposed to both the same type of coronavirus and and to the variants. And I think that if this were a widespread severe phenomenon, we we'd probably know by now. That's not to say that that it couldn't possibly happen, but but I, it's not something that I'm on on the level of on the level of things that I'm concerned about with SARS-CoV-2. I think what I'm much more concerned about is a variant that becomes more infectious, evades immunity, and is potentially more severe. Something more like the P2 variant, for example, that we've seen circulating in Brazil yeah. and starting to spread outwards. So those, those sorts of things are, 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 I think, in these axes of likelihood and severity. I think yeah. that that's more on, on the, the more likely and potentially more impactful sort of thing than, than antibody-dependent enhancement, given what I know now. Okay. But, but it's, a great, it's a great question, and it's something that, that we have been and are continuing to pay attention to. Yeah, so I don't know, I don't know if I have anything more conclusive to say than that, but... Right. <laughs> No, so then, okay, this may not be, this is outside of the, the, maybe it's inside the conversation, but it's obviously, I'm just curious. So first of all, you mentioned about it can hack the system. Now we mentioned like with Mark, you guys talking about how it doesn't really have a mind of its own. It doesn't really intentionally do anything. It doesn't really hack like with an intention. It just, is this something like dengue that was just literally just random that it happened? Or is this something that's like, is it just, it's just a random thing that, that is inherited to dengue, that particular strain of dengue or whatever it is, or. So is it just a random thing, just just a fluke that this happens this way? Yeah, basically. So speaking in terms of evolution, basically what you can imagine happening is that we start off at some point in history with a single dengue virus, and then it mutates and evolves. And those are just random. And But eventually, it, it comes up with a couple of mutations that allow it to hitchhike on antibodies. And so what that allows it to do is then it spreads a little bit more easily. And that's the thing that that pathogens are evolving to do. Since it can affect your cells, if, if this variant were spreading in a place where a lot of dengue had already spread, most of these mutations are just going to die out because your immunity is going to protect you. But one of these lucky things is going to be able to come in. It's found a strategy now to yeah. to to infect your cells, even in a place where dengue has already spread. And because of that, that too is going to spread. And as it spreads, it rises in prevalence. And that's, that is what leads to its existence and its ability to spread in the population. So, right, it, it doesn't have a mind of its own. But the idea is, is, again, always pathogens are the thing that they're selected to do in evolutionary terms, thing that that yeah that they're selected to do is is to spread it just like with any other organism their thing they're selected to do is to reproduce and so when they do that successfully then then you start seeing them and that's that's okay. what happened here and then my second question is sarah mentioned this and i don't know how this would be related it's that say you she was saying wait for better vaccines everybody everybody's gonna get their vaccine but in this situation would that be an answer because it sounds like dengue you just pull the vaccine that's just there's so in theory, if that was the case, I'm not saying there is, but would you just not have a vaccine for that? Or is there ways by which you're like in theory? I just, I would just, I'm just curious, like, what's the answer if a random virus that spreads all over is that is then a vaccine off the table or is it still on the table? Just you have to do new research or something. 
Yeah, I think I think it would just involve new research, and this is this is getting outside of my depth. Sure. So, I if, if any if any vaccinologists are listening, please write in and correct yes. anything that I'm about to say. But but I think this is this again is one of the reasons why people have been so excited about the RNA vaccines because I think that in theory, if if you could. When we get the flu vaccine, we're actually vaccinated against multiple flu strains. It's usually a trivalent or a quadrivalent flu vaccine. So that means that we're getting vaccinated against two different types of A flu and usually two different types of B flu as well. So in theory, the same thing could happen where, where maybe you could have a vaccine that protects against all of the different types that are around, and that could provide this broadly protective immunity against all of them and prevent you from, from any one of them sneaking around your immune system. That, I think, is the direction we would like to head. Okay, great. That makes sense. Okay, so let's continue on. Just just bring the attention to the Atlanta shooting last week and just the violence over that and just how devastating this is and how much just how much hate has come from COVID and just goes to show I love I just wanted to mark this what Steven said months ago. We're talking about super spreading and the Pareto principle and I was really pushing to what type of person and like you were even saying, like in epidemiology, we just, you guys try not to do that kind of reality of, because you know what it can do that by, by hallmarking the traits of a person, you single them out. And oftentimes that this leads to just this kind of sense of like violence. And we see this here, that a great example of calling it the Asian flu, the China flu, that kind of stuff. These don't really do anything to help, but only just, just draw the attention to greater sense of violence and prejudice. So just our hearts go out to that, our hearts and prayers. And just, yes, yeah, so I just want to bring that up. Hospitalization. Here's a question for you. This is what I want to, so we're seeing cases go up just this morning, 21 states. Now, nothing dramatic, but we're just seeing a small tick and there could be lots of reasons for this. Obviously, we know a lot of states just relaxed their policies. So it could be just that. Oftentimes, it's probably more complicated. It's, it's more, but here's my, my pointed question that I thought of this morning. And that is, we're having 2.5 to 3.5 million people being vaccinated every day. It's, it's, it's increasing quickly. We have more and more people becoming naturally immune. Up until this point, we've just focused on, okay, you'd always say uh, cases go up, they spike. And it's not until about two or three weeks after that, that we start seeing the hospitalization. So it's a lag indicator. So my thing, my, also I'm thinking, could this now be inversing now where if we're having more, and more people vaccinated, which means they don't really have as many severe symptoms and may have more mild symptoms. So they may not even want to get tested uh, because they don't even notice it, but yet they have it. So then the tests don't go down, but then we still have less, but more hospitalization start. Could we see the inverse by which we actually start seeing hospitalizations first and then rates go up second? Is that a possibility now? Is that a thing you're talking about or no? Yeah, so this is I really love this question because this is this is a classic example of how to think like an epidemiologist. Ooh. Like that's great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so these are the sorts of things that that we uh, do and and are thinking about although I hadn't really considered this this exact scenario. So yeah, so let's break it down. So you 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 basically proposed like one one hypothesis, right? Where there's people are getting vaccinated, the vaccine reduces your tendency to get a test, and yet eventually COVID will spread to somebody who who ends up getting hospitalized and and so we'll start rises and hospitalizations. So that's one possibility. On the other hand, so we now we're in in a period of time when we've been really highly vaccinating the people who who are most likely to go to the hospital in the first place. And so what we might have is a scenario in which if I'm I'm 30 something and I, if I got to if I if I got COVID and I felt it, I'd go get a test. I haven't yet been vaccinated, but the it would take somewhat longer if if I if I happen to spread it onto someone else. The number of 
transmissions that would have to occur before it reached somebody who actually was at risk of going to the hospital is somewhat longer. And so you could actually imagine it going the other way too, where we start to see rises in cases in, in, in young people, for example, but then they become decoupled, right? Where you can see ups and downs in cases, but you can imagine the extreme scenario where everybody who's at risk of severe disease and illness is vaccinated and nobody else is. And then we'd see all sorts of changes in the cases, but we wouldn't see anything happening with the hospitalizations because it yeah. was, everybody who would go to the hospital has already been protected. This is another great example of, of that things are complex and I have yeah. no idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no idea what's going on here. But but you're right. I think that you bring up an important point that, that the vaccines are going to affect this 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 lag somehow they're going to do something and i think this is this is where modeling this is why this is why we do what we do as as mathematical epidemiologists because that this was something that one of my colleagues mentioned when we were doing the vaccination article is that when when common sense suggests two conflicting outcomes that's when a model is really helpful because it allows you to really rigorously think through all of the different possibilities and different magnitudes of how these things might affect when people get a test, when people go yeah. to the hospital, and it allows us to distinguish those things. When common sense is good enough, we don't need to write down a model. But when common sense tells <laughs> yeah, us two totally. different things, that's 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 when my job gets interesting. So. Yeah, yeah. No, this is fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm just interested. Yeah, that, thank you for sharing the complexity of this. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen. And I would imagine that when you start adding, just like anything, once you add more variables into the mix, models become more complex. In some sense, Maybe even though that it was March and it was April when you got that big publication that you did and all those different scenarios, like three or four different scenarios of what it could be in the next summer and next fall. Maybe in some sense, even I'm totally this is not right. I, I should I'm way over talking here is is could those models were not simpler, but now then they get more complicated because now you had another variable vaccine. And they're like, OK, now not here's not four models. Here's 17 different really strong possibilities and all are equal. Oh, that's great. Okay. Let's keep talking the vaccine. I want to quickly just go back to variants. It wasn't our notes, but is there any variants to be concerned about right now or anything on the horizon? I haven't been following that as much. I haven't seen much in the news, particularly just keep the same ones repeating. Is there any new news on the variants that we need to bring to the surface for this, this episode? Yeah, not a lot other than the the prevalence of certain variants, especially B117 and the related variants, some of the variants that were detected first in California like B1427 I think and B1429 have been increasing in in many states. I know that Massachusetts also just marked its first detected P2 case, which is the variant that we first detected in Brazil. We can go back to previous episodes, I think, to to talk about some of the differences between those. But really, the key differences that we're thinking about is differences in how infectious and its ability to potentially get around the immune response to some degree. So I think for me, the, the variants that are more transmissible, the usually the B-type variants, um, are the ones that, that are seem to have taken hold really in a lot of places and are starting to make up a higher and higher proportion of cases, even if they haven't yet really been associated with surges of infection. That may just be a matter of time. Of course, there's a lot of complexity around this too. So there are going to be places that see more and more cases of the variants, but don't actually see an increase in total cases for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that we're turning into summer and that climate varies and behavior varies between different places. So having a variant and having a variant at high prevalence doesn't doesn't guarantee that you're going to see a surge, but it makes it more likely. And I think that's what we're starting to see where we've seen cases start to increase in Michigan, for example, really notably. And it's a pretty clear increase in cases over the last couple of weeks. And so there's, again, it's it's all of these things and then some, but, but we are starting to see more and more circulation of variants. And it's something that we're trying to pay close attention to. And again, it's as always, it's a race between the variants on the one hand and then 
vaccination and changes in the season and all of these other things on the other. So. Okay. And curious, going back to Dr. Doom, Dr. Alistair Holm, have we seen any states or is there any statistics of, of, of tipping over 50% of the vari- of any particular variants in one of the states showing examples by which is Michigan one of those, or is that just, it's too hard to tell. Do we have any of that data? It's hard to know. So again, uh, many states, there, there's a lot of variation in how much uh, surveillance different states are doing for yeah. the variants as well. Mm. I think in some of the bigger states where a lot of surveillance is happening, we have evidence. I think in, in California, certainly parts of California and parts of Florida, we have where the variants have tipped over to over 50%, probably happening elsewhere. And yeah. we may not yet know as well. Sure. So. Okay, great. Continuing on, uh, vaccine related. I saw this article. I know you said a number of these articles we were going to postpone for Mark. So there's some good ones for Mark, but we want to talk into this. I saw this article from Glenn Good, the importance of sleep after getting the COVID vaccine. So this just perked me up because uh, I, have a, I have a tendency to have a lack of sleep for a number of reasons and, and working on that. And just want to know, how, is this something that is true and how is sleep? I'm assuming this is an immunological thing because that's what a vaccine does. Have you seen anything like this and heard anything about this? Yeah, this doesn't surprise me. Sleep is an interesting thing. It's like this super mysterious thing from a medical and a psychological point of view. Like, I think we know a lot about sleep, but there's a lot that's like really mysterious about it too. But we do know that it's so deeply integral to all aspects of our health. I know that early on, I... I, I would love to be able to point to some scientific studies on this. And I think that they're out there. I just don't know what they are. But um, pointing to the importance of sleep when you have COVID infection and that just getting sleep and especially making sure that you take time for sleep and for rest. If you're experiencing longer term symptoms of COVID, long term fatigue, things like that can be super important for for recovering from that. The vaccine is is different it's not it's not an active covid infection but sleep sleep really does play a large role in our immune response in our ability to mount a robust immune response it's no accident that it's easier to get sick when you're really sleep deprived it's uh, your your body just needs those that energy to regenerate the immune cells you, you can imagine your immune system is this remarkably dynamic thing right it's like constantly producing these new cells and always on the lookout for these new variants how exhausted you get when you're constantly <laughs> looking out for something when you're like waiting for something yeah. bad to happen and you're just like waiting and waiting you know right oh like you're just sitting there yeah. but it's exhausting and your immune system is doing that it's like constantly producing cells and always on the lookout doing the surveillance around your body to try to detect these invaders that's that takes a lot of energy you just you just stated what it was like in the at the at the beginning of the pandemic, like like yeah. we were we like, we like we were like we were empathizing with our immune system by like constantly like looking around, never resting for the COVID particles that we wouldn't get infected and not knowing where they were coming from and just the fatigue and I'm like wow, what a microcosm of the reality of our of our body. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's basically it. Is that sleep sleep helps make sure that when when we do get the vaccine, your body can mount a good, robust, solid immune response and give you the best chance of being protected. Great. So get your sleep. I'll keep working on it. I'm chugging away. As it's all here, COVID vaccine trials for children are underway. That's good news. We've talked about it in the past, how, how complicated that must be. Parents and their children and just God bless those those children who say yes to help this move forward for everybody else to be able to vaccinate their children if they want to. Vaccine. This is an interesting question. I know we got to cut this off here in about five minutes. Uh, Steven's got to go to another meeting. Vaccine death reports are not what they seem. This this, spur, this sparked this question for me, Stephen. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely right. But in my mind, I'm like, what's the term limit for like when someone, not to make light of this, but like when somebody dies, and you qualify that as an open opportunity to study and see the connection because somebody gets vaccinated. There's hundreds of millions of people that are getting vaccinated. 
And so you don't, you do, you just like, oh, it's three years later and count me in for a connection. Clearly there's a cutoff. What, how does this work? Do you have any insight of when you, how do you deal with the complexity of this? Oh boy, it is complex. I don't think that there's like any hard and fast cutoff, but you're right that like implicitly there there has to be some. But there's there's a bit of complexity around that too. So the, clearly, it's this this gets this really gets into the depths of causal analysis, right? That, which is is a big area of both mathematical study and philosophical study. What what can we do to attribute a cause to something? It's incredibly difficult. One of the things that that is evidence of causality is when one thing follows another very predictably within a certain amount of time. And so usually causal analysis, attributing a cause to something is made easier when two things follow each other very in a very close period of time. And it just gets harder and harder as time goes on because there are more intervening factors that can that can confound this, this conclusion of one thing causing another. On the one hand, it's easiest if, if somebody who got the vaccine and then we suddenly saw within a week or two high rates of some outcome, you can be pretty sure that, that, that one is causing the other. That sort of decays over time. Now, it doesn't decay equally for all things. So if, if for example, we're, we're vaccinating a ton of people right now, and if all of a sudden in five years, we saw a bunch of people starting to break their arms, like they, a bunch of people were just having like freak accidents, breaking their arms, they were just like tripping over the sidewalk. We might not, like, it's probably not related to the vaccine, right? Like, I don't know, like, it's, yeah. we're, we'd be looking for something else, you know, like yeah. maybe something else is, I don't know what would be causing people to break their arms, but there's no sort of like <laughs> mechanistic link between, yeah. other than maybe the vaccine, you know, you can speculate yeah. all sorts of different things, but but this is to illustrate basically that the, the alternative is that if all of a sudden we start seeing these really weird immunological things happening, then it's like, maybe we should revisit this idea of, of the vaccine and, and what it's causing. Now, there's, again, uh, there's really good reason to believe that that's, that, again, the vaccines are safe and effective both in the short term and, and it seems in the long term because these, there's been a lot of questions about the RNA vaccine. And, yeah. and we've had, we've been administering RNA through vaccine type avenues to people with cancer for a very long time. And there have been animal trials for decades. And so there's good reason to believe that we're not going to see that kind of thing happening in the future either. But just to illustrate that that one way to help with that analysis of attributing a cause is if there's reason to believe from our understanding of the system that, that two things might be connected as well. So for certain things, that span of time is longer. For other things, that span of time is shorter when we can attribute causality. And But, but the interesting thing is that I don't think it's very well articulated. And that would be a really interesting thing to look into. So if there are any philosophers of science listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> we'd love to have you on to talk about yeah. this. Yeah, that'd be great. No, it's fascinating. And I just curious about this and the connection between these two things. And then, and then my mind started exploding. I know some people are really into privacy and I guess this, this could be a violation of privacy, but like the idea of, oh, that this is clearly being documented that I got the vaccine, whoever gets the vaccine gets the vaccine. And that down the road, like six months from now, all of a sudden there's like a pattern evolving. Is there a system that's like, like that's randomly watching this? Oh, there's, we've had, 100 million people get the vaccine and then all of a sudden and six months later of these population we see a rise in a flag of this similar reality that, that'd be a fascinating reality to put together but i understand all the privacy and hipaa and that kind of stuff that goes into play with that but that, like that fascinates me to see that yeah. connection we have to end here in just a minute but i just want to drop this really quickly astrazeneca there's been a lot of problems not a lot of problems it's been blown up about this blood clot and this possibility know anything about the astrazeneca and the blood clotting and that rare possibility yeah, there's there's a lot of as you said, like there were various European countries that pulled their approvals for the AstraZeneca yeah. vaccine, and now many of them are readopting it. I think the important thing to to point out is that this is this is the 
health regulation and self and safety system working as it should. The the rates of of blood clotting, to my knowledge, to the extent that they exist with respect to these vaccines, is it's actually I think quite a bit. Like COVID itself causes a lot of blood clotting and a lot of strokes as well. And and your risk of of of, of blood clotting from the vaccine, based on all of the evidence that we have, is is again substantially lower than than if you have. COVID. Now, that's not to say ideally the rate would be zero. We we don't want people to be getting blood clots from a thing that that they're putting into their bodies to keep themselves healthy, and so it it merits review. It merits caution for sure. Sure, and that's and that's why the, it was it was is right. Like I think I think that all of this was made good sense. This is yeah. what we should be doing. If there's a concern for safety, we might be starting to see these rare events as millions and millions of people get vaccinated, and when they pop up. We need to do a review. We need to we need to check into that. We need to see what's happening, and that's what we're doing. And that review is proceeding and has proceeded, and seems like there's nothing really to be alarmed about, as far as we can tell. At least as an undo. Again, everything has has some level of risk, yeah. and and that's the question. Is we're not we're not saying that the vaccines are without risk, yeah. but we are saying that the level of risk that you take with getting a vaccine is is so substantially much lower than the level of risk that you hold by getting COVID itself, that the vaccines are, are a very good option. Yep. That's great. Yeah. And on that, I think it's kind of some people were, were, were questioning whether they should have been pulled because that's like millions of people that could get the, the vaccine and save their lives potentially for some small reality. And I think that's up for grabs. But in the end, I think it's also, you mentioned before, it's like the healthcare system in general needs to be shown that it actually is being cautious. And so something about doing this to keep showing that we're at, you guys are actually taking this seriously. We're just, we're not pushing it out for pushing its sake. If there is anything, we'll stop. So there's a message that, that, that implants a future trust. And I'll end on this. It was part of this article up in the show notes that I don't know if it's true. I didn't confirm it. It said that the blood clots with the vaccinated people were actually lower than the expected rate in the general population. So I think it's also a good sign that, that whatever it is, it's, it's very, very nominal. We got in there. Steven's got a, another meeting in six minutes. Steven, thanks for joining us. So good to have you and see you there, buddy. If you guys want to check out him, you can follow his Twitter list. It's pretty awesome. Connect with him on Twitter, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R. Support us, please. Pend- uh, Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or pay, uh, Venmo, PayPal on the show notes. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. We'll see you all next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.